Genesis chapter 29, as we make our way through this book, uh, considering the generations or family history of Isaac, uh, focusing primarily on the journey and life of Jacob. Uh, We come now to chapter 29. I'd like to begin reading in verse 1 down to verse 30. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 29, beginning in verse 1. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. He looked, as he looked, he saw well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lined beside it, for out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? They said, We are from Haran. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? They said, We know him. He said to them, Is it well with him? They said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. It is not the time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go, pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him to be but a few days because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this that you have done to me? Did I not serve you, serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be her servant. 
So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning the person and work of Christ Jesus, your Son, our Lord. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel and also uh, endurance uh, in light of all that Christ has done. And we ask all of these things in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, Jacob is headed to Haran, fleeing the murderous wrath of his brother Esau. But also, uh, another reason that he is headed in this direction, as his father told him before departing, was to find a wife from among the daughters of his uncle Laban. And so with those two things in mind, Jacob set out on his journey. Last week, we saw how on the first night of his journey, the Lord appeared to Jacob in a dream, unveiling to him the gate of heaven. As a stairway from heaven came down, the Lord reaffirmed and reestablished his covenant with Jacob personally so that he would be his covenant God and Jacob would be uh, uh, his servant. And there the Lord reiterated uh, those promises, promising to give him that land, which which was nothing more than just the gateway to heaven, as, uh, as, as the book of Hebrews confirms that ultimately Jacob... Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's hope was the heavenly homeland. And so there the Lord graciously and sovereignly appeared to Jacob when he least expected it. And the Lord also swore to be with him in his journey. He gave him his protective promise that he would go with him, that he would, that he would keep him, literally guard him on his way and return him back to the land of Canaan. With that divine assurance ringing in his ears, Jacob, in our passage today, set out on his journey from Bethel all the way to Haran. Now, this would be a a very lengthy journey to go on foot. No doubt there were many uh, ups and downs. There were many uh, uh, things that could have been relayed during this journey. But for our purposes, Holy Scripture fast forwards to the very end of him arriving at his destination. In verse uh, 29, he arrives in the land of the people of the east. And so what we ought to appreciate here is that Jacob is reversing his grandfather's footsteps. Literally, he is arriving at the very same place in which Abraham had originally left to go into the land of Canaan. Arriving there in Haran uh, to uh, the the place in which his uh, great uncle uh, lived. Uh, the, the place which was located in northern Mesopotamia. And verse 2 and 3 really set the scene. He, before arriving at the city itself, he comes, to, he comes upon a well out in this undeveloped field. On top of this well is a very large stone which would protect the water from becoming contaminated. And around the well were three flocks of sheep lying beside it with the shepherds waiting around for the rest of the shepherds to come in order for them to remove the heavy stone and water their flocks. Now, the fact that Jacob encounters a well at the end of his destination is good news considering part of his mission. Remember, he's looking for a wife. 
And if you lived in the ancient world, if there was any place for you to find a wife, it would be at a well. It's because typically it was the duty of young women to go gather the water. And so our minds are immediately drawn back to chapter 24. Abraham's servant going to this place to find a wife for, uh, for Isaac. Uh, you, you may also think about uh, Exodus chapter 2, how Moses met his wife at a well. And so the fact that he's already at a well should immediately, in our mind, think this is the place. This is where he's going to meet his future bride. And yet he speaks to these shepherds. He addresses them courteously. He calls them my brothers. And he inquires, what city are you from? You see, Jacob at this point, this is before, uh, even before the, the, the uh, written maps, uh, certainly before Google Maps, he doesn't know where he's at. And so he needs to uh, ask these guys where they are from. And lo and behold, they're from Haran. They are from the city that he is attempting to go to. So then he inquires them about Laban, his uncle. Do you know Laban? And it's interesting as he inquires, as he, he peppers these shepherds with questions, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty clear, at least in the Hebrew, that these men are not too chatty. They're not really uh, wanting to talk too much. The, in the Hebrew, at least, their answers are only one to two words long. And as soon as Rachel comes, as soon as they notice that Rachel's arriving, they immediately want to defer to her. Well, here's Rachel. She's your cousin. Go ask her. Uh, and, and so these men are you know, not outwardly rude, or at least uh, uh, not very chatty with Jacob. But as they introduce Rachel, it's an interesting device, they introduce her, and we are really put in Jacob's shoes as we are now awaiting her arrival. We're left wondering, as Jacob was, what does she look like? What sort of person is, is she? Is she going to be the suitable bride for Jacob as he has to continue talking with these shepherds. And it's interesting, as, as he awaits Rachel's arrival, Jacob takes upon himself to give these shepherds some shepherding tips. He says, well, hey, it's, it's, it's not the time to be gathering your flocks for watering now. Go t- water them and get them out. Uh, go, uh, go pasture the sheep again. And these shepherds really uh, clue him in on this custom uh, that apparently they all wait, all the shepherds gather together, they wait until everyone arrives, and then they all together move this heavy stone in order to, uh, to water their sheep. Perhaps uh, what they have going on here is a first-come, first-serve basis, and perhaps these shepherds are wanting to get in early so that they can water their sheep first, uh, but also perhaps they're just being a bit lazy. And they're just kicking back and waiting for everyone else to show up. Well, uh, regardless of that, Jacob is trying to give them some tips. And perhaps what he's trying to do is get rid of them. Hey, get lost, guys. <laughs> Rachel's coming, right? And so he tells, uh, uh, while he is still talking with these men, while Rachel, uh, Rachel arrives. And here we see Jacob completely disregard this local custom of waiting till everyone else shows up. And he takes matters into his own hands. He moves by himself, single-handedly, this heavy stone, and he begins watering uh, the, the flock of sheep that Rachel is tending to. Or, uh, yeah, Rachel is tending to. Here, immediately, our minds should be brought back to chapter 24, uh, and now, but now the roles are reversed. Back there, it was Jacob's mother, Rebecca, that had watered the, the, the servant's camels. Well, here now, Jacob is watering the flock. 
may, may wonder, what was his motivation? Why was he uh, doing this almost superhuman feat of moving the stone and watering uh, the sheep? Was he overcome by Rachel's beauty? Perhaps. But it's interesting that we're actually not told about Rachel's appearance until verse 17. Perhaps he was trying to win over Laban's favor through this brazen act. Notice there in, in, verse, uh, in verse 10, it, it reiterates that it was Laban's sheep that he was watering. And so here, it, it, through a display of his strength and through a display of service, perhaps he's trying to win over his uncle's favor. But certainly in verse 11, we see that he is overcome by emotion Uh, After he waters the sheep, he does the seemingly strange act of kissing Rachel, which, by the way, uh, shouldn't be interpreted as romantic. Uh, This was a common form of greeting in the ancient world, as we see in verse 13. Uncle Laban kisses Jacob, and so certainly that was to be expected. But then he weeps aloud. He starts crying. This this once strong man who moves the stone is now uh, crying like a baby. Certainly he is overcome an emotion at the fact that he has finally reached his destination. And, uh, and overcome by this emotion, he cries. And then, in verse 12, he clues Rachel in as to who he is. Notice the order there is, uh, should strike us as a bit odd. He's watering the sheep. He's giving her a kiss. He's crying out loud. And then in verse 12, he says, oh, I'm your cousin. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm your aunt's son. Uh, and you, one must wonder what Rachel was thinking the entire time that this stranger is doing all of these things. But as soon as Rachel finds out who Jacob is, she runs and tells her father Laban. And we read in verse 13 that as soon as Laban heard, he ran back to greet Jacob. As soon as he heard of the visitor from his sister's family, he was eager to go and greet Jacob. You see, Laban has been here before. You may recall back in chapter 24, after Rebekah had the encounter with Abraham's servant at the well, we read that as soon as Laban saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms and heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, thus the man spoke to me, he went to the man and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. And he said, come in, O blessed of the Lord, why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. You may recall back when we were in chapter 24, ultimately, although Laban seems uh, like a very gracious host, very eager uh, to, to take this servant in, we saw ultimately it wasn't hospitality that was motivating Laban, but greed. Notice it was as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets and the camels bearing gifts that Laban said, come on in. You see, Laban ultimately, you just picture him there, he had dollar signs in his eyeballs as he, as he saw Abraham's servant. Well, he's been here before. And if Laban had his hopes up that he would see a, a great caravan of, of uh, camels and, and bearing gifts from his rich uh, relative, certainly Laban must have been quite disappointed when he sees not a, a, wealth, a servant from a wealthy uh, uncle with ten camels, but ultimately a single runaway who is completely broke. And yet, nevertheless, he receives Jacob, his family, and takes him into his house. And so, if we pause here and appreciate so far Jacob's journey, I think we can say so far, so good. He safely arrived at his destination. 
he, uh, uh, you know, through providence, uh, was able to meet uh, his, his uh, cousin, uh, Rebecca, and his uncle Laban takes him in. So far, so good. But you see, after a month, things take a sudden turn. Notice how Laban addresses Jacob in verse 15. He says, uh, he's, he says to him, because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Who said anything about serving him? You see, Laban here is introducing a new and key term which will come up time and time again throughout Jacob's tenure in the land, uh, in, in the land of Haran. Seven times alone in this passage, the word serve appears. And so here we see Uncle Laban seeking to transfer their familial relationship, un- uh, uncle and, and nephew, into a purely commercial one. You see, ultimately, that is the way in which Laban operates, motivated by greed. He takes advantage of those who are closest to him. And so here he's, he's telling, you know, rather than saying, hey, I want to help you out because you're my nephew, you're my sister's son, uh, maybe I can get you back on your feet, he says, no, you're going to serve me. I'm going to be your master. And even that, sadly, that's even the way he treats his daughters as well. As we see in this passage, he treats them like pawns. And by their own admission in chapter 31, they say, are we not regarded by my, our father as foreigners? For he has sold us and has indeed devoured our money. See, sadly, Laban is motivated by greed, and he seeks to, uh, he's constantly seeking to see what he can get out of others. And so here he says, uh, he he, uh, tells Jacob, well, serve me and name your wages. Well, now at this point, we are introduced to Laban's two daughters. We're introduced first to Leah, the older of the daughters, as well as Rachel, uh, who we've already heard about, the younger when we're told in verse 17 that Leah, uh, something about her is that she, uh, Leah's eyes were weak. Now, literally, the Hebrew there is, the, the word translated weak can also be translated soft. And really, at the end of the day, scholars just are, are not sure exactly what's being described here. Did she have some sort of eye condition? Was it some sort of deformity? Perhaps others just suggest that, that she just lacked vibrant color in her eyes. The thing that was probably most treasured in the ancient world was to have vibrant eyes. And that is, uh, uh, Leah ultimately just didn't have that. But whatever it was with her eyes, uh, the fact that her younger sister, Rachel, is described as having a lovely figure and beautiful, as the NIV renders it, suggests it was more than just her eyes that led Jacob to be attracted to the younger sister. And certainly the fact that he is attracted to, his, uh, to the younger sister and he's on a mission to find a wife presents Jacob with a problem. You see, in the ancient world, in order to obtain a bride, you had to pay what was called the bride price. This would be money or gifts in the form of, of various things, whether it's gold and silver or, uh, or uh, flocks or whatever, you would have to pay a price to the family of the bride in order to obtain the bride. And having no money of his own, Jacob is unable to do that. And so here, Laban's commercial uh, off- offer presents Jacob with a, a way in which he can obtain the bride. He has no money of his own. 
So he offers to work for free for seven years. Now, if you're wondering, is that a fair price? Is that a kind of typical rate? Uh, This is a very handsome price. The fact that he would be willing to work for seven years shows how much he treasured uh, Rachel and how how badly he wanted to obtain her as a bride. And yet, despite the fact that this is a very handsome price, Laban's response is less than enthusiastic. Do you notice how he said in verse 19? I suppose it's better that I give her to you than anyone else, right? And notice it's also not just uh, less than enthusiastic, it's very vague. Who is her when he says that? I suppose that I give her to you. In contrast to Jacob's very specific request, Rachel, your younger daughter, that's the one I want, right? Laban's kind of keeping, maybe uh, keeping his options open here, as we will see later. But in verse 20, in, in a single verse, we see seven years fly by like that. Notice there, it says, uh, so Jacob served seven years, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for Rachel. The fact that he was just motivated by her, got him up every single day, and he was, he was thrilled to go to work for seven years serving his uncle. They seemed to him like a, a, a couple days. Ironically, this is the same, these are the same words that his mother used back in chapter 27 when, when Rebekah told Jacob to flee the murderous wrath of Esau. Go stay with, with your uncle Laban and stay with him a while. Literally, Re- Rebekah said, stay with him a couple days until your brother forgets about what you, what you have done to him, is willing to forgive, and I'll call you back and everything will be fine. There we saw how Rebecca's assessment of the situation was perhaps a bit optimistic. She was perhaps a bit, uh, a bit rosy on her prediction that, that Esau would just somehow forget about what Jacob had done and that uh, Jacob would only have to spend a few days out in Haran. Well, it seems like it's only been a few days. Even though it's been seven years, the first seven years of Jacob's exile are a relative breeze. If at this point in the story, if Jacob was able to marry Rebecca, uh, sorry, marry Rachel and head on back to Canaan, it would have been simply a breeze. He would have, wouldn't have thought twice about his time in Haran. No big deal. And yet, another red flag arises when at the end of seven years, in verse 21, Jacob has to remind his uncle, give me my wife. Did Laban not know? Did he forget that it had been seven years? Uh, Or was he maybe just a little hesitant, a little reluctant? And so Jacob has to demand, without so much as a please, give me my wife. I've done my time. I want my wife. And without a recorded response, without saying so much as a word, we see Laban go through the motions of throwing a wedding party. Now, in the ancient world, Wedding parties uh, would last uh, sometimes up to seven days. And that's exactly what is happening here in this passage when Laban talks about the week, fulfilling her week. You see, it would start off by throwing a huge feast the first day, and that is when the bride and groom would, be, would, uh, would consummate the marriage that night. But then the party would continue for, uh, for another six days. And so a wedding party would last an entire week. And so Laban's throws the party the first night. But on the night of the wedding, he makes a dastardly, 
switch. He does probably one of the more crooked, dishonest, sneaky things in all of Holy Scripture. He takes, not Rachel, but Leah, and he sends her in to the bridal chamber. And Jacob, uh, unbeknownst to Jacob, uh, does not find out until the next morning. Now we wonder, how was he able to do this? Well, keep in mind, it was the custom in the ancient world for the bride to wear a veil right up until the wedding night. Uh, you remember Re- Rebecca, when she was about to meet uh, Isaac for the first time, what did she do? She put on a veil. And so in all likelihood, Laban was able to utilize this veil, which completely covered uh, his daughter's face. Also keep in mind, this is the time before electricity, and so no doubt the bridal chamber was pretty dark uh, by the time the wedding was over. And so utilizing the veil, utilizing darkness, and also I think it's a safe bet that at this wedding there was uh, copious amounts of wine. And so probably, presumably, Jacob was a bit inebriated. And so taking advantage of clothing, taking advantage of the uh, uh, inability to see, taking advantage of wine, Laban was able to deceive Jacob. Does that sound familiar? That's exactly what he did to his father. Taking advantage of his father's blindness, wearing Esau's clothes, serving him food with wine, in order to deceive his father. There, it was Jacob was able to switch his identity for his brother's identity. Here, Laban is able to do the same thing except with his daughters. The deceiver is deceived. You reap what you sow. And so here we see, uh, uh, just through the Lord's providence, Jacob ultimately getting what he had done to his father. But he doesn't find out until the next morning. And again, we're put, uh, you know, we see this through Jacob's eyes in verse 25, the next morning, behold, right? You just picture Jacob waking up, you know, thinking, oh, that was a wonderful evening. And he wakes up to, to see his bride for the first time in the morning light. And it's Leah. (laughs) It is the wrong sister. Uh, Just, you know, the, the comedy, but also the tragedy. I mean, just think, I mean, you couldn't picture a worst way for a marriage to start. And this is, the, this is what he wakes up to. It's, in fact, Laban's older daughter. And so he goes to his uncle Laban, and he says, What have you done? What have you done? This question has been asked several times throughout the book of Genesis. Remember, after Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit, the Lord goes to them and says, What have you done? Remember when, uh, when Abraham lied to Pharaoh about the identity of Sarah, saying she was my sister, Pharaoh came to him and says, what have you done? And the same thing appeared again with King Abimelech, with Abraham, and again with King Abimelech, with Isaac. Now, for the first time, the man of God is able to ask this to somebody else. What have you done? Why would you do such a thing? Why would you deceive me? You see, even as Jacob, as the words leave Jacob's mouth, he highlights his own hypocrisy. He's done the same exact thing previously. And Laban's response may seem pretty weak. His explanation, uh, well, it's just not our custom in our country to, uh, to marry off the younger before the firstborn. But here we see a barbed reply. Notice what he's telling Jacob, the firstborn. 
He's reminding Jacob of the rights of the firstborn. You don't need to remind Jacob of that. He knew everything about the rights of the firstborn. He had lived his entire life living in the shadow of his brother because he had been born minutes after him. And so here, Laban, perhaps even in this, uh, with a barbed reply, in our country, I don't know how you guys do things down in Canaan, but here we marry the older daughter first. But wait, Uncle Laban is not done. He has yet another offer. He says, well, you can take Rachel too. You can take Rachel now after you finish off the, the wedding ceremony. You've got to finish off the week, which no doubt would have been a humiliating week for Jacob as he's sitting there at the bridal table right next to Leah and not Rachel, the one that he had worked for. Uh, after you finish off the wedding week with Leah, I'll give you Rachel as well. And yet, you've got to work for me another seven years. You've got to pay... Uh, so, so here's the deal that Uncle Laban had uh, for Jacob. You get two for the price of two, right? You get two for double. And so Jay, uh, crafty Laban is able to marry off his, shall we say, less attractive daughter and get seven years of service for her to get top dollar for the one that he probably wouldn't have been able to marry off in the first place. And so here he is getting 14 years of free service rather than just seven. And he succeeds in keeping Jacob around. You may recall when Abraham's servant came to get Rebecca. And uh, they, they, they said, okay, it's fine. You can take Rebecca, but let her stay a while. Let her stay here a bit. And the servant said, no, do not detain me. I need to go now. We saw there Laban perhaps trying to hold on to the servant, not wanting him to go. And he was unsuccessful. And yet here he is successful in keeping Jacob around for at least another seven years. And as we'll see, it'll be another 13 years before Jacob is finally able to leave, but uh, only when he uh, is actually flees from him under, under deception. And in stark contrast to the first seven years of Jacob's service, which seemed to him like a few days, was just a breeze, the next seven years of Jacob's exile will be characterized by strife and turmoil, which ultimately was the fruit of this hapless union. As we'll see in chapter 30, uh, Jacob's life will be one of misery uh, with these two feuding sisters as his wife. And so as we conclude this passage, I think uh, it's important to keep in mind this passage in light of the one that immediately preceded it. Remember, the Lord had appeared to Jacob uh, you know, in, this, in this vision at night with the, the stairway from heaven and the Lord standing by him and swearing an oath that he would be his God, that he would bless him, that he would give him the land, that he would be with him and protect him and bring him back. And we have to wonder, where, what happened to those promises? In light of this passage, which you may notice, the Lord's name is never mentioned. How is it that the Lord was able to make good on these promises? What happened to his sovereign guidance? How could he have let these things happen to his covenant servant? And perhaps the same thing has happened to you. Perhaps you've gone through things in life where people have cheated you or taken advantage of you or mistreated you or any sort of suffering that has come upon you and you wonder how could God have let this happen? What happened to his sovereign guidance? What happened to his care? I thought everything was supposed to be great. I think it's in those instances that we need to hear the reminder 
of the author to the Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 12, where he says, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? As he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he, whom he receives. That's exactly what the Lord is doing to Jacob here. We shouldn't interpret this as the Lord's anger against him. Clearly, we know how the Lord feels towards him. Jacob is justified by faith. He is, he is a member of the covenant of grace, as, as we saw in the previous chapter. And yet, how is it that these things can happen to him? The Lord is using the suffering in his life to discipline him, to conform him more and more into his image. He's allowing, ultimately, Jacob to suffer the consequences of his sin so that he would learn to turn from it. If he would have been able to go straight home with Rachel after the first seven years, he probably wouldn't have learned his lesson. And I think the same thing could be said of each and every one of us as we go through suffering in life, what the Lord is doing is he's teaching us to turn away from our sin and turn towards him in trust and ultimately hope of the day in which he will make all things new. As, as the author of the Hebrews goes on, he, saying, uh, the Lord disciplines us for our good, that we may share in his holiness so that we could be like him. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. Tell that to Jacob the morning he woke up and realized it was Leah. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so here we see the Lord at work in Jacob's life, just as he is continuously at work in our lives by using the suffering, using even the sinful things that people do against us for our good. So what Paul tells us in Romans 8.28, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Notice Paul is not saying that all things are good. That is certainly not the case. What he is saying is that God is able to take all things, including the sinful, evil things that we and others do, and turn them for good. That's the amazing thing. That is God's almighty power at work in our life to glorify himself as well as to make us more and more like him. And we see that not just in Jacob's life as an individual, but we can also appreciate this throughout redemptive history. And we'll close with this. If Uncle Laban hadn't done that dastardly switch the night of the wedding, and Jacob never married Leah, then they never would have had kids including their fourth-born, Judah. And if Judah hadn't been born, then we know King David wouldn't have been born. And if King David hadn't been born, we know that our Lord Jesus Christ would not have been born. And so what an amazing thing is we see the Lord's hand using even sinful things to bring about his purposes uh, so that we can be saved and he could be glorified. Amen? Let's give thanks.